Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Father, we thank you this morning for this moment we have together in your presence, this, um, this opportunity we have every week, and we're thankful for how you use it. Um, just seeing you be faithful to your promises. I just think of the scripture that says that if we draw near to God, if we draw near to you, God, you will draw near to us. So we're just here for that simple reason, Lord. We, um, we, we find that there's a tendency to, to drift away, and so we're here to draw near. And we thank you, God, that you are waiting for us, and you're meeting us there as you're pursuing relationship with us. So God, we invite your, your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to minister to us in this place as we study your word, um, and we ask that you would be the ultimate voice that we hear in this moment. Speak right into our lives and give us ear to, ears to hear what your Spirit's saying. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Go ahead and take your seat. Um. First of all, a doozy of a scripture reading. Maddie, really well done. A lot of big words in there. I'll, yeah, you can clap for Maddie. Way to go, Maddie. Kyle's favorite scripture reader, as he said. Um, and also, like, good morning. Welcome to church. The first verse that Maddie read was, essentially, watch out, you're about to take a beating. That's literally the first verse we read. It went into sibling betrayal went into the abomination of desolation, and then Christ returned. So good morning. Welcome to Solus. This is pretty normal for us. We're just allowing the scriptures to be the Bible and um, opening our lives up to what God has to say, believing that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us in our relationships with God. Um, and we have a great context here that helps us hopefully understand a little bit more what's going on here in Mark. As Kyle already said, the greater context uh, in this series is the way of Jesus. That's what Mark highlights and features for us. It gives us a crystal clear picture of the way in which Jesus conducted himself and lived his life and really navigated just the full spectrum of all that life can throw at you. Um, there's just so much to Jesus in, in these gospels, these biographies of his life. Uh, here in chapter 13, we are this morning looking at what we're, what we're calling the way Jesus prepared part two, all right? So every week's like a different aspect of the way of Jesus, and chapter 13 here, we're focusing on the specific way that he prepared his disciples. That's something he, he did a lot. Jesus, uh, his time was short on earth as he was ultimately going to go to the cross and ascend to the right hand of the Father and send his people out to proclaim his, his good news by the power of his spirit. And so most of his ministry to his disciples, especially towards the last year, involved preparation. I want you to think about like an eight, a 17-year-old that's about to move out. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got to prepare you to do your own laundry here. All right, you got to develop some sense of preparation to do life without me beside you. Now, I'm going to be with you, he'll tell them. I'm giving you my Holy Spirit who's going to be in you. He actually told them, it's to your advantage that I'm not with you. Because if I go away, I send you the Holy Spirit. And the only thing that's better than Jesus beside you physically is his very presence within you spiritually. 
Um, it's pretty cool to think about. Now, that's most of what we see with Jesus, preparing the disciples for his departure. But here in chapter 13, what we're looking at is something different. Jesus uh, isn't preparing them for his departure. He's preparing them for his arrival, his second coming. He's going to come again. He came the first time. He's going to come again. In my head, I just think of yesterday picking up Brittany uh, and Aaron and Judah from the airport. They did a little getaway to Colorado, you know, just casual. Um, and Judah got to see snow, the whole thing. And I always freak out. I don't know what it, what it is. I, like, I just have some wires that they're not touching, or maybe they are touching. Isn't that bad when some wires are crossed and they shouldn't be? I, I'm not all sure. As you can see, something's wrong with me. But I, I always, like, panic when I get to that, that point uh, of uh, picking someone up where I'm like, departures or arrivals? Like, we're going to depart after we leave here, but I'm arriving right now. But there, I, anyway, that's just me. So, but Jesus had a real clear distinction in his mind between his departure to the right hand of the Father and his promised arrival. This is something that he would comfort the disciples with often. I'm coming again. The, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. The kingdom of God will finally and fully break in in history, and we're still waiting for that day. Just as Israel longed for the day for the Messiah to come the first time, we, as those who look back on the Messiah's first coming, we look forward to his second coming. We live in light of that, another advent, that expectation. So uh, here in chapter 13, that's, that's really what this is all about. So let me kind of catch you up as to why that says part two on the screen. Um, so this morning is part two of a message that I I want to say began to preach, I should say attempted to preach fully, last week. Originally, I was like, let's do, chapter 13 is a can of worms. It's all eschatology and end time stuff, and there's so many implications. And so one attempt was like, maybe we just kind of like send it, and we try to study it in one week. That didn't happen. And so uh, here we are, week three in verse nine. And we should be through here soon enough. But um, last week, I, I sought to, to pre preach a whole message that this will be kind of part two of. Um, and it's, again, on this chapter here, Mark 13. So some greater context to what we just read. Uh, this chapter is commonly referred to in the Bible. It's a lot of red letters. Jesus is speaking here. This is a chapter that's called the Olivet Discourse. Have you ever heard of that? description before. Jesus is giving this discourse on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, and the context is essentially uh, the disciples are asking Jesus a question. That's, chapter 13 is really Jesus's long answer to a question that the disciples ask him. Uh, we get a lot of detail to this question from Matthew's gospel where they say this. They come to him privately and they say to Jesus, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? This is what they're wondering. They know Jesus is going to return, but they're like, Jesus, can you give me a date? Let's set an appointment. I'll put it in the calendar. I want to be ready. And so they ask two questions. Either one, when are you going to come back? And or, how do we know when it's soon, right? What sort of signs are going to indicate that your return is near. Now, to the first question, Jesus really gives them one sentence, and it's in this chapter. He goes, no man knows the day or the hour. Don't spend any of your energy paying any attention to anyone who tells you that they know exactly the day or the hour that Jesus is returning. Nobody knows. The second they claim it, they're already wrong. It's essentially what Jesus says. However, even though you might not know the exact day, you can recognize 
the times and seasons that point to his nearness. There are certain signs and signals that they ask for that Jesus, listen, is, is fully inclined and eager to share with them. You know, Jesus doesn't want his followers to grow into apathy in their walks with him. You know, we can just be so used to the promise of Jesus' second coming that's been around now for 2,000 years. You know, even though Peter says that's two days to the Lord. We can just kind of grow used to this idea that Jesus is coming back, and we can just sort of settle in to just like a surface-level spirituality that attends church and, you know, tries to pray and do my devotions. And, And Jesus has a heart for his church to be so much more than that. He wants to see his people lit on fire for him. He wants to see his people charged with passion and excitement for what he's doing and what he's going to do. And one of the ways that he kind of recharges us is he reminds us that he's coming and he's coming soon. Like that will charge your faith, won't it? When you think about, like, I just think about, um, again, so Brittany and Judah, they went out of town for a couple days. The truth, the, the bigger story there is that I stayed home with two girls for three days, okay? That's really the story. And uh, I had some incredible help from family and friends. Um, got me through it. We did it together. But, um, you know, it's, it's like, Saturday, all of a sudden, knowing that Brittany is coming back on Saturday becomes, let's clean the house, okay? Now, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday was kind of like, dad's in charge, let's do this. And I kind of got the facade like, yo, this is dad's house, what's up? And then like, Saturday comes around and everything changes. It's like, mom's coming home. Mom is coming home. Let's get this place dialed in. That, listen, that expectation of her return affected my approach to my day, It really changed. It created a sense of urgency. And I believe this is true of followers of Jesus as well. When we have a grip on his return, we're not going to be lulled asleep in our faith. We're going to be ready. We're going to be passionate. We're going to have a sense of urgency. Now, so so Jesus, when they ask him, like, what will be the sign of your coming? Jesus wants to see his church ready. So he is eager uh, to give them a heads up. Like, you know, I love a good heads up. It's always nice to have a friend that gives you a heads up on something. I try to always be that friend, you know, especially like in traffic, if I see, I'm sorry if there's police officers in the room, but if there's a cop there with that speed trap, I'm going to hit you with the lights. I'm going to be like, yo, watch out, watch your speed, heads up, okay? Because I want people to obey the law. That's what it is, okay? That's, that's where that comes from. <laughs> but Jesus here, he gives a great heads up. He, he, he wants to give his disciples a heads up of, and listen closely, and this is so much of our faith. Like, Right expectations. So much can go wrong in your life when you, if you have the wrong expectations. You ever face this? Like sometimes we get T-boned in our faith because we were expecting something that God never promised. Or we get T-boned because we weren't expecting what happened. And so like... Christians should be those that have, like, dialed in expectations because we don't get them from feeling or experience. We get them from the authority of God's word. This tells us what to expect. And so Jesus wants to give his disciples a heads up of what they can expect in three categories. He, he gives them that there's going to be signs that they can expect to see, and all of these things that, they could, that they're expecting are going to happen right before he comes. They could, there's things that they can expect to see in the world. Expect to see this in the world right before I return. That's verses 5 through 8. That's what we looked at last week. Kind of world conditions. Uh, then he says, here's what you should expect. We're going to look at this next. Almost here immediately. 
what you can expect from the world. As Christians in the world, what you can expect from the world before he returns. And then lastly, there is this really interesting passage there from 14 to 23 where Jesus gives us some expectations uh, for what we can expect to see upon the world, like events that are going to happen that Jesus predicts. He's predicting this 2,000 years ago, and he's saying these are some things that you can expect to see upon the world. And when in the Gospel of Luke, he says, when you see these things happening, don't put your head down. I'm giving you a heads up for you to lift your head up. Look up to the skies. I'm returning. When you see these things coming, these are signs of my return. So last week, we looked at like world conditions that Jesus said these are like birth pains. That The, the more that these are happening in, in frequency and intensity, just like labor pains, you know the baby's coming. Well, Jesus, he gives us in verses 5 through 8, when you, when you see, expect to see these things in the world with a growing rate of frequency, he says things like military conflict between nations, earthquakes, famines. He goes into all, the, all these things, spiritual deception. Like when you see that happening on the rise in the world with increased regularity, that's a sign that I'm returning soon. The next category, let's look at this. This is where we picked up in our, our reading, is... What we'll start with here as we jump into part two of this, it's what to expect from the world right before Jesus returns. What to expect from the world. And this is when we say the world here, we mean the system of the world, the people of the world. Um, Jesus says this. He says, watch out for yourselves. In other words, heads up. Be ready for, for what's coming. As you advance the kingdom of God, expect this from the world right before I return. He says, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. Now, Jesus, uh, no pun intended, Jesus doesn't pull any punches here, okay? He wants his followers, listen closely, to be ready for the resistance, the real resistance that they're going to face from the world as they seek to be faithful to him, as they seek to further his kingdom. Um, as the disciples and as we, as the church here in the 21st century, as we seek to, to bring the good news of Jesus, we, we bring a hopeful message. We have the best news that anyone can report, amen? Amen. That those who have fallen away from God by their own volition and decision can be brought back to God and reconciled to him forever with the hope of eternal life. Not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Come on, that's good news. That's what we rejoice in. That's what, you know, we sh- every day we pray what, what David prays. Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. God, thank you that you've saved me and you rescued me. And, and we're ambassadors of that good news. It's what you do with good news. You share it. You tell it. You proclaim it. And so everywhere we go, we are, we're, we're agents of the gospel. And Jesus says, as you go, I just want you to be ready, especially in the last days, as you go to bring the good news into all the world, as Jesus promised, he says this, you know, essentially, it's like, there will be many who will receive the gospel. There will be many. You look at Revelation, you get this picture of all tribes, nations, and tongues. The gospel will be preached to all the nations. There will be many who will receive the good news of the gospel and rejoice in Christ and what he's done for them. And there will be others who will reject 
the good news. And they will resist us and the message we bring. There will be both reception and resistance. There will be both rejoicing and rejection. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says everything much better than any of us could ever say it. And he says it so beautifully this way. He says, the same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. The same gospel which melts some person to repentance hardens others in their sins. It's the same message, but it's two different responses. That's something that we're not sovereign over. We don't have any individual control over. In fact, real good theology will help you understand you're not even controlled of the fact that you received it in the first place. That was the work of the Holy Spirit of grace in your heart to soften your naturally hardened heart to the gospel. It's a work of the Holy Spirit, but it's a truth of reality. That there are some people that when the gospel comes to them, it comes as good news. And there is others, Jesus is getting us ready, there are going to be others that when you bring them the truth, I'm just talking about the goodness of the truth to them, it will be met with harsh resistance, harsh rejection. And Jesus in this passage, it's interesting, he's, um, Jesus in, in, in the verses we read is painting a picture of what that resistance, like the extent of what that resistance can look like. And let's be honest, it's not a pretty picture. It's pretty ugly. It's not something I'm, I'd be too excited about. The, the resistance is going to look like you're going to be delivered up to councils and beaten. Like there's a physical aspect to the resistance. If you take like all the words of what Jesus says will happen in this passage, Jesus says this. He says that this, the extent of the resistance that's going to come upon Christians all throughout history, and especially in the last days, involves them being hated. He says, uh, you will be hated by all. That's just, you know, exciting. He says, you'll be betrayed. And he describes the betrayal being so deep that even, it's even among family members, which for us might be hard to understand that, like someone betraying us in our, like, you know, pluralistic, super, you know, inclusive society. But for... Um, a recent convert from Islam to Christianity in the Middle East that's now been ostracized from their family and is hiding for their life as a sacrifice of their faith in Jesus. This is, this is resonating. They get this, that there's a resistance that leads me to be hated, betrayed even by my own family. It leads to a physical component. You're beaten, and he even says you'll even be killed. Um, Jesus gives this picture that hopefully um, jolts his followers into a sense of preparation, okay? Like, um, and even, like, even the language he uses, like, you will be hated by all is really strong language, right? And that, I mean, that's not literally true, right? I mean, thankfully, not everyone hates us, thank God, okay? Um, and and, and there, there's great news to how there are many who have welcomed the faith, but Jesus wants to turn the heat up to be like, it's almost like he's like, if you're going into the world with this expectation that you're going to be loved and welcomed by all, you better get ready. You're going to be surprised when the resistance comes. You know what I'm saying? Now, Paul had the same spirit. I mean, this is what it says in 2 Timothy 3.12. He's like, he's, Paul has discipled young Timothy, this, and Timothy struggled with fear a lot. You could nickname him. I, I used to call him, you know, I used to call him this, even though I'm about to say it, you know? Um, I was going to say, when I was a youth pastor, I used to call him this. 
I'm, I guess I'm still a youth pastor at heart, but I used to call him Timothy, you know, a little Timothy, because he just struggled with fear. You know the verse that says, like, you did not receive a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind? Paul was encouraging that over this young man who just felt, you know, weighing over his head in ministry, just like, I'm not prepared for this, and people are are mean, you know, and ministry is hard, and he's just like, he tended to like cower back in fear, and, and, and so one of the ways that Paul encouraged them is he was like, hey, you, do, you don't have a spirit of fear. Another way that Paul encouraged him is he painted a picture of the stark reality of what he's facing in life. He's like, welcome to the ministry. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He wants his followers to be ready for the resistance that they're going to face. Like, if there's another way to say this, I want to say it this way. Jesus teaches this, Paul reiterates this, that faithfulness to Jesus will cost you. It will cost you. Okay? Now, and this is hard for us to understand in our culture, because we have taken the good news of, the, of, of free grace that cost Jesus his life, but comes to us as a gift of salvation for free. We don't buy it with our good works. We receive it by faith. And we've taken that good free gift, and we've just washed the entire Christian faith to be this cheap thing that doesn't cost us anything. And so, so much of Christianity is packaged that way. And I, I'm afraid, especially in these last days, that most Christians are not prepared for what faithfulness is really going to cost them as the heat gets turned up. And so in scripture, you have this like interesting paradox as, as a Christian. Here's the paradox. Salvation is free, and it's purchased for you by the blood of Jesus. Romans 3, we're justified freely by his grace. Can I get an amen? That's good news for you and me, isn't it? Salvation is free. Stop trying to pay for something that you don't have a penny to contribute to. Faithfulness will cost you everything. Salvation is free, but faithfulness is expensive, man. It's expensive to be a Christian in this culture. It costs me a lot. It costs me social popularity. It costs me social acceptance. I might get canceled. The cardinal sin of culture. It'll cost you. It'll cost you socially. It'll cost you financially. It'll cost you relationally. It'll cost you physically. And Jesus, again, wants his followers to be ready. Now, I, I love, now, this is what I love about Jesus. Because if, like, if I close the message here, it's just like, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was a good church. Like, it was nice. Like, they honored the pastor. That was cool. But, but yeesh, like, a bunch of Debbies, Debbie Downers, that is, you know. And it's like, not Debbie, Ben and Debbie, not them. But, you know, it's like. It's like, what's up with these people? And this is what I love about Jesus. Um, you know, Jesus, how do I say it? Jesus doesn't, and this is why we love him, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat the hellish realities of earth. Amen? Like, he's like, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. He doesn't sugarcoat it, nor does he diminish the incredible hope of heaven. He usually, in, in our culture, we like one or the other. You know, so I, we've talked about it this way. Like, we often live with either fatal pessimism or blind optimism. And even in our Christian thought, we're just like, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We're all going to be persecuted. America's doomed. All right? And it's like, no one can be saved. Every, they all hate the Lord. You know, it's like this. It's like chill, bro. You know, like, 
It's this very fatal pessimism that doesn't actually include the rest of the context. Or the other danger is just blind optimism, which is what we're already talking about. Everything's fine. Everyone's, it's going to be okay. The best is yet to come, you know. It's like, well, we don't know. Eternally, the best is yet to come. But maybe the worst is yet to come for a while. Maybe things are going to get harder before they get better. And so I love Jesus because he doesn't, like, live in one or the other. He doesn't sugarcoat the hellish reality of earth with blind optimism, nor does he diminish the powerful hope of heaven. He's, he's, he's bold in this. And so I, I love this. He's like, be ready. You're going to be persecuted. But then the next thing that he says in these verses is don't be afraid. Hey, all, you're going to get hated, beaten, betrayed, killed, rejected. But don't worry. <laughs> I love that. Just don't be afraid. Now, why? And Jesus is going to give some reasons why. And Jesus is going to say this. Inasmuch as you expect these things to happen on earth, he also gives us, in the face of this resistance, he gives us some things that we can expect from heaven. Okay? So these are realities to expect on earth. But he gives a few other things that we can expect from heaven. The first thing is, write this down, it's not on the screen, but the first thing is that we should expect, in the midst of the resistance, we should also expect God's providence. God's providence. The providence of God involves the involvement with, God's involvement with the affairs of our lives. The way David says it is, my times are in your hands, Lord. Nothing will ever happen to me outside of your faithful sovereignty. You have me in your hand. My life is not in my hands, my life is in your hands. That's the Christian security. In the palm of your hand, you'll never lose me. Jesus points to God's providence. He goes, yeah, you're going to be delivered up. Um, you're you're going to be delivered up to council. You're going to be beaten in synagogues. Now, this verse, it looks like there's a little typo here. Um, the rest of verse 9, uh, let's, you know what I'm going to do? Check this out, guys. I'm going to read it from my Bible. Here you go figure. At the end of verse 9, look in your Bibles too. It says this, you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. Do you see that? So, so Jesus is saying, you, there's going to be opposition and you're going to be brought before even great rulers to demand a verdict of your, of, your, um, of your punishment for being a Christian. But I love that he says, I'm involved in this. That opportunity is to be a testimony to them. We see this with Paul who, like, he, I mean, Paul's like the example of persecution for faithfulness to Jesus. And one of the best examples of this truth here of God's providence is you have Paul, who's so entrenched in resistance and persecution that he's brought before King Agrippa, a high royal authority. And King Agrippa, after Paul gives his testimony, King Agrippa goes, you almost persuade me to become a Christian, Paul. Like, in this, listen, this is what God's providence does. I want you to see this. With God, opposition becomes opportunity. Opposition becomes opportunity. We don't just go, oh, it's opposition, it's opposition. No, God, don't count out God's providence. Jesus is like, you're going to be brought before rulers for an opportunity to proclaim who I am to them. That's pretty cool. And we see that throughout history. So we should expect, beyond the resistance, we should also expect God's providence. Another thing that we should expect in the midst of the resistance is also the gospel's furtherance. Expect resistance, but also expect from heaven the gospel and the kingdom's furtherance. Uh, it's there at the end of, uh, it's actually verse 10, where Jesus says this, I love this, and the gospel must be preached to all the nations. That's so cool. So 
He's like, you're going to get beaten up. (laughs) You're going to have to suffer the cost of following me and being faithful to me, especially in the last days. You know, the Bible doesn't paint this picture of like a Christianized future in the world that's all harmonious and peaceful. The Bible paints a picture right before Christ returns of real spiritual opposition. But he says, but don't be afraid because no matter what comes against you, I love, like if Jesus says a must, like something must happen, just sit back and watch it happen. It's going to happen. Jesus likes, no matter what happens, comes against the church, the gospel must be preached to all the nations. He's saying this in the first century. Before the gospel had even left Israel, at this point, the gospel must be, in other words, um, yeah, there's going to be resistance, but there's no amount of resistance that can thwart or extinguish the purposes of God. If it's God's will, if it's his purpose, then it's going to happen. And Jesus even echoes this to his disciples in Acts 1.8. He says that you're going to receive power. Jesus prophesies here he prophesies the global church movement of which we are a part of, okay? If you ever wondered, like, am I in the Bible? You're right here in Acts 1.8. You're in this verse. By name? No, but it's still meaningful. Look what it says. You shall receive power, he's telling his church, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the church is that they're going to be witnesses to Jesus locally there in Jerusalem, but also in all Judea and Samaria, and to Boca Raton in the Greek, Bokatas in the Greek, to the end of the earth. I mean, just beautiful. Jesus is like, hey, this thing is going global and nobody can stop it. In fact, in the first century, when, when, when um, there was all this uproar about the, the fire of the Christian movement, it was Gamaliel. Do you remember the story in Acts? When, when, the, when the, the Jewish rabbis, uh, Gamaliel was the chief rabbi, and when the Jewish rabbis came to Gamaliel complaining, he's like, well, why are you complaining? He goes, if this is not of God... And if it's just another kind of fad, another religion, another, another spiritual path, it's going to fizzle out. He goes, but if it's of God, if, if the Christian, if Jesus rose from the dead, and if the Christian gospel is the message of heaven, and if the Holy Spirit is saving people through the cross of Jesus, then you cannot stop it. This is a non-believer saying this. Don't stand in the way. Just let it, let it be and see what happens. Well, what happened? Exactly what Jesus said would happen. I love this reference. Habakkuk 2.14 says this. The earth will be filled with the knowledge, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is pre-Jesus. The Bible said this, that, that just as the waters cover the sea, The earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. God's people will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Um, And and this is really just what we see in history. Um, We we see this pattern. You can jot this down. Uh, Throughout the past two millennia, we've seen, starting there with the disciples... We've seen radical, passionate gospel advancement from people who are willing to give their lives faithfully to, to, the, to the work of the kingdom. Um, and I want to say this too. In Acts 1.8, it says that you shall be witnesses to me. Remember that verse to the ends of the earth? The word witnesses there in the Greek is the word martis. It's someone who's so faithful to their testimony that they're, will- they're like, kill me. I'm not going to deny this. It's true. 
And, and that's what you have throughout history. You have people who are, who are devoted. You see that in the early church, this radical, like we cannot but deny the things that we've seen and heard. Do you know what I'm saying? That gospel resist, uh, advancement, this is, this is like the play-by-play of what happens in every century, okay? Like what's going on in America, it's end of days, we're in America. First of all, America is not the epicenter of God's work in the world. We're a little pocket of history, okay? We're so self-important. <laughs> when you look at the grand total of history, we're, this is a pattern. The gospel advances, and then it's met with spiritual resistance, and I want to say a key word here is spiritual resistance, not just physical resistance, because I believe every physical resistance that comes against the purposes of the kingdom has a spiritual backing to it. And here's why. The Bible teaches that through the fall of man, Satan has become the temporary landlord of planet Earth. That's one way to say it. <laughs> He's the prince of the air, is what the Bible says. You know, when he offers Jesus the kingdoms of this world... Remember that temptation? You could have it all. Jesus doesn't go, it's not yours to give me, bro. He doesn't say that. There's an there's a ownership that Satan has over this world. And there's nothing that Satan hates more than to see his temporary domain hijacked by the kingdom of light. Nothing he hates more than to see the church. You know, what we, you know what we get to be a part of? That makes being a part of the church exciting. Hey guys, welcome to Solus. So here's what we're a part of. This is our new vision statement. We're here to hijack the earth from the devil. We're here to bring the message of redemption that even the whole earth is going to be renewed and restored back under the authority of Jesus. You think he likes to see that spread? I think it was a coincidence that I got in like a crazy car accident two weeks before we had our first core team meeting for this church. And lest I become so self-important, I'm just talking about the reality of church. He doesn't like to see the gospel advanced. So the second you say, God, I'm going to serve you, I'm going to be faithful to you, you're painting a big target on your forehead. And maybe you felt that. Have you felt that? Have you felt that with your, every time when you're passionate for advancing the good things of God, you automatically find there's a greater level of resistance? It's like, what is that? That's validation of your value. That's validation of what God's doing in your life. That means you matter to God, and what's valuable is vulnerable. So there's spiritual resistance, but here's the good news of Jesus. We expect resistance, but remember, Jesus says, but this gospel must be preached. We should also expect heaven is going to do what heaven going to do, okay? The gospel is going to be furthered. And so here's what you see throughout history. You see gospel advancement is met with spiritual resistance, but the spiritual resistance that the enemy brings against the church, it often beautifully backfires against the enemy and produces greater advancement. You see this in the book of Acts. I think we're at a moment in time where we're seeing this in the church, and one of the ways that we can see it is there's something about persecution that tests the purity of faith. Like, are you a consumer church-going Christian or are you a true follower of Jesus? And there's, persecution will surface. Resistance. And I'm, not, and I'm not talking about physical persecution because I know we're like, we're not fully there. And I don't want to in, in any way downplay real persecution that people face. But spiritual resistance, it backfires for the kingdom of God because it produces it surfaces and produces true resilience, real Christians. And, um, you know, I don't want to see it become harder to lead a church in America. In our, like, I'm not looking, like, I'm not, like, I'm trying to, you know, grow the, the Lord's work. And it's like, 
you know, God, can I just get some more resistance? I will, you know, I don't, I'm actually often praying for relief. Like, God, this is hard, okay? But then there's parts of me that's like, Lord, maybe that's the best thing for your church in America. Is making it, it's just so easy to be a Christian here. It's like, what is it? If, and if it's not, if your Christian faith doesn't cost you anything, how is it worth anything? How is it actually worth something? And so I, I see this in our generation. I see this in history. You see that the spiritual resistance, it moves forward gospel advancement in a greater way. Um, throughout history, you know, Jesus said this. He said the gospel is going to go to all the nations. This is really amazing. He said it must, must first be preached to all nations. The, the, the work of the gospel, start, it's interesting how if you follow church history, the movement of the Christian faith as a wildfire has spread radically, especially through persecution, on this axis of east to west. This is the story of church history. It starts there in Jerusalem, and it makes its way down south. It goes into India. Thomas brought it into, into India. But you see this pattern, almost like the way the sun rises from east to west. So what's happened is you, you saw that in the, in the first few centuries, and it moves east to west. And, of course, we're here in the Americas. The Christian faith has blown up in Africa and Brazil and has now come back around to Asia where there's radical gospel growth in, in China and some of these parts of the world. And part of me believes that it's going to finish its course back in Israel. And Jesus is going to come back very soon. Uh, here's a little map um, of global Christianity that kind of calculates the spread. It is horribly pixelated. So I want to first apologize to Aaron, who makes all of our graphics. Aaron, I, I ripped this off the internet, and it's impossible to read. But I'll read it for you guys, okay? Um, she's back to like, uh, uh, no. Um, this is from Jeremy Treat, Dr. Jeremy Treat out of uh, Los Angeles, pastor in Los Angeles. He wrote a book called Seek First, Seek First by Jeremy Treat. It's a book about the kingdom of God, one of the best little books on understanding the work of the kingdom in the world. And he charts the global movement of Christianity in the day we're in today. Uh, in North America, there are 277 million Christians. Started with 12 guys. Can I remind you of that? Okay. 277 million. In Latin America, you have 601 million Christians. In Africa, you have 631 million Christians. In Europe, 571. Asia, 388 million. Oceania, I totally know what that means, is 29 million. The Australia location. That's what I call that, right? Listen to this. This is from his book, Seek First. He says, the movement of Jesus is a global, multicultural phenomenon. The movement of Jesus is a global, multicultural phenomenon that is more diverse than any community or religion this world has ever seen. And it's growing faster than ever. Jesus said, I will build my church, and he's doing so across the earth. It's estimated, listen to some of these stats, it's estimated that around 80,000 people, 80,000 people become a Christian every day in the world. One of the best cases for this is the nations, or the continent of Africa, and the nation of China. In 1910, listen to this, there were only 8.7 million Christians in Africa in 1910, just over 100 years ago. Today, there are, as you see there, 631 million Christians. To, guys, in a century, things can change in a nation, in a country, in, in a whole land. This is amazing. Nigeria, did you know this? Nigeria has more Protestants than Germany, which is the birthplace of the Protestant Reformation. In China, in 19, this is amazing, in 1949, there were 
under, under one million Christians in China in 1949, under one million Christians. And because of some of the great gospel advancers of the last century, today there are over 58 million Protestants in China. And I love, he says it this way, the name of Jesus is being praised in 4,765 languages throughout the world. This is the biblical vision that we have in the book of Revelation of a multi-ethnic kingdom, and it's being realized in our time. God's glory is being seen among every tribe, language, people, and nation. Amen? So in the face of the resistance, expect the gospel's furtherance. Another thing to expect is in the midst of the gospel's furtherance, expect the Holy Spirit's assistance. Expect the Holy Spirit's assistance. He says, that's, that's better. Hey, oh, there we are. He says, but when they arrest you, it's going to happen and deliver you up. Here he is. Don't worry. Be happy. Don't worry. And he says this, don't premeditate. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, what you will speak. All right. Whatever is given to you in that hour, speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Like, if, if there was one, like, way to summarize the way that Jesus would prepare his disciples, it's this. And this is what Jesus wants you to grow in today. One of the main focuses of Jesus' preparation for his people is to grow their dependence upon the Holy Spirit. To grow in their reliance upon the Holy Spirit. To see, first of all, that he's working. The Holy Spirit's at work. Like, and this is where we, like, we can fall into fatal pessimism with our country. Where we're like, it's, you know, the whole you know, the hell in a handbasket kind of mindset and thinking. And we can, by default, see every person as a resistant enemy. Especially if they're on that different political team than us. Especially if they looked. So we can just automatically, whatever they're buying into, and we can create these enemies of culture rather than see people maybe as casualties of a culture that's run by the powers of darkness, and, and we could be so focused on what the, like, oh, for a church that's as Holy Spirit-focused as they are devil-focused. He's at work around us. He's tearing people down. What, ab what about the Holy Spirit? What's he doing in that person you already wrote off, in that person that you've already made your enemy, What's the Holy Spirit doing? That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't count out the Holy Spirit. The helper's at work. We don't, we don't know whose heart he's working on. Our job is just to be sowers that sow the word. We're just like plant some seeds. I don't know what's in your, going on in your life, in your heart. And, and can I tell you, like when you approach life and relationships and evangelism and mission this way, you will be surprised. Like, wait, oh, they, they, received, the, they received Jesus? Oh, they're hurting? And because you befriended them, you got to hear more of their story, and you saw where Jesus fit perfectly into that void, and they found fulfillment in him. So, so we need to expect the Holy Spirit. He's at work around us, and he's also at work in you. He's at work in you. He's the helper who Jesus has sent for you to be empowered to represent him. And, and what Jesus is not saying here is don't ever be prepared for hard conversations, you know. He's not saying you don't need to read your Bible, you know, and study apologetics. Just, you know, you just show up and you get zapped and you have the words. No, the, the idea here is, we know other scriptures would contradict that. What Jesus is saying here is, in all your preparation, your confidence can't be in the flesh. It's got to be in the power of the Holy Spirit. And who's the helper? He's, he's for you. He's in you. And sometimes the simplest prayer, 
John Tyson says this, he's a pastor in New York. He said this at a retreat I was at recently. Sometimes the simplest prayer that Christians need to learn to pray is this. Holy Spirit, help. Help. That's his name. He's the helper. What a great prayer. Help, Holy Spirit. Do your thing, right? You're the Holy Spirit. He's actually Australian, so he said, Holy Spirit, sh- you're up. That's what he said. I love that. <laughs> Expect the Holy Spirit. Lastly here, as we expect the Holy Spirit, we expect heaven's assistance. We also expect heaven's inheritance. So Jesus is like, it's going to get ugly before it gets better. Brother will betray brother to death. Sibling rivalry to the worst extent. A father, his child. Children will rise up even against parents, causing them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. So it's like the, the worst possible betrayal that you could ever imagine that happens even with your own family Jesus wants his followers to be ready but he who endures to the end will be saved okay Jesus isn't saying that if you want to be saved your salvation is contingent upon your endurance no we know this is a promise of scripture that God preserves his people he preserves you he has you in his hand If he got you across the starting line of faith in Jesus, he'll get you across the finish line. Amen? He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. This is a verse of hope. This is not about conditional salvation. What he's saying here is hold on. As much as it might not feel like it right now, your perseverance will pay off. Your perseverance will pay off. There's an inheritance coming. Those who endure to the end are met with salvation and reward and glory. Can you give me eight more minutes? Can we do this? Half confident head nods are my favorite thing in the world, okay? The last thing here, we'll close out these verses here, is what to expect upon the world. Write that down. It's not on the screen either. What to expect upon the world. Um, so Jesus is like, this is what you're going to have from the world. And now he gives us eight minutes to, to understand. Thank you, Lord, for, those, for these eight minutes. We just commit them to you in Jesus' name. Okay. He, he wants his followers also to be ready for what's going to come upon the world. And this is, a, I'm putting my blinker turn signal on for you because this is a turn, okay? He, he talks about a prophetic event that's going to come upon the world that he calls the abomination of desolation. It's spoken of by Daniel the prophet. He says, when you see this happen, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. So we're all now obligated to understand what he's talking about here in eight minutes. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus, quoting right from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 11, pulls from an event that was spoken of here all the way thousands of years prior, where Daniel prophesies about an individual who will defile the sanctuary fortress and they will take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Two big, you know, Asian words, right? Abomination, desolation. This is an event that has really a lot of Christians divided and debating around. Um, that Let's simplify it a little bit. First thing that we know about this event that Jesus says is going to happen is it involves abomination, right? Um, it involves something profane, something that desecrates in the context of the temple. 
And Jesus expounds on it, and he talks about that stuff is being taken away, and someone is standing in the place where they shouldn't. They take away the daily sacrifices, and they stand there in the temple, in this, and they commit an abomination. Um, the idea there is, is, is profaning what's holy, removing the sacrifices, and putting something unholy in a holy place. And it brings desolation. The result of this action is that there's complete destruction. I, I, know, I know you're getting cross-eyed, but keep following me, okay? Jesus says, when you see this happen, when you see this event happen, understand that those, in Jude- that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, there, a lot of the debate has to do with when this or if this has occurred yet. And if it has, when has it occurred? This event that Daniel talks about, Jesus talks about. Uh, one of the, the, probably the most like copy-paste um, examples of when this could have happened occurred years before Jesus even came on the scene. In 167 BC, the king of Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes was his name, he captured Jerusalem and he desecrated the temple by offering a pig on the altar to Zeus. This happened in history in the intertestamental period. And what went along with that is turning the temple even into a brothel and creating, I mean, as much of an abomination as you can imagine. Now, obviously, that wouldn't really work for this event because this happens, Jesus says this after that event happened. So I believe it's a type and shadow of an ultimate fuller fulfillment. Or others point to 70 A.D., in 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, perhaps that was the abomination of desolation. But let's, let's keep reading about this event. It says uh, here, it says, when this is going on, let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house or take anything out of his house. The, the idea here is like, it's a perilous time. Let him, him who is in the field not go back to get clean clothes. Like, you got, you got to, this, is a, this is a time to run and flee. The idea is terror and peril upon the earth. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Not the best time for that. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. That's when all the snowbirds travel. Obviously, that's what Jesus means there. No. He's speaking about the dangers of fleeing in these perilous times. He says, notice this, for in those days, now he says this, there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor shall there ever be. And unless the Lord shortened the days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And he says that if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, he's there, don't believe it, false Christ, false prophets are going to rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, it's not possible, but if possible, that's how strong the deception is. But take heed, Jesus is like, I gave you the heads up, when this happens... Heads up, I told you this was going to happen. Now, we get a little bit more context here. Um, this abomination of desolation event in the temple, it coincides with what Jesus described as an unprecedented world tribulation period. It's a period of time that he shortened. If it was any longer, no one could survive. No one would be saved. But for the sake of those that he chose for salvation, you know, think of in the Old Testament in Sodom when God... Uh, was gracious over the city because of one righteous person. That's the heart of God. And so in this end time, or rather in this tribulation period, because there are those that he chose for salvation, he graciously shortens those days because of how gnarly they are. But this tribulation period, it it tells us this, that it's an unprecedented time. This is really interesting. We, We read it there. That this is a time of tribulation that's 
first of all, it's, it's upon the whole earth, not just Jerusalem, that nobody has ever experienced. Like, we've all experienced our own tribulation. But God, Jesus says here that there hasn't been tribulation like this on the world since the beginning when God created, nor will there ever be another time like this, a tribulation period. Now, again, some people would link this to 70 AD and what's going on in Jerusalem. And, you know, I'm just obviously here sharing what I think this passage means. We talked last week about how this is not a point of division for the church, a good point for conversation and debate and some brotherly wrestling is what we'll say, okay? But I want to point out what um, the scriptures say, what Jesus says here in verse 24. He says, in those days, after that tribulation period, and this is the key phrase. This is why, for me, I can't take this event and place it in AD 70, this, to me, is a future event that hasn't happened yet. In those days, the sun's going to be darkened. I don't remember that happening in 70 AD. I wasn't there. wasn't there. Most of us weren't, okay? But the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall. The powers in heaven will be shaken. And then, in those days, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So... This is kind of the, the dilemma this presents to someone that sees this as event happening in AD 70, is you have to somehow either um, explain how Jesus returned in AD 70 and we all missed it. So we missed the return of Christ? Bummer, all right? Or, or you have to spiritualize it to some extent, which is, is not going to be faithful to some basic laws of, of Bible interpretation when you have so much stuff here that's not, it's not spiritualized. The persecution earlier is not spiritual, it's not spiritualized, it's real. These are real things that are going to happen. Uh, and so, and so, Andrew, what do you think it is? Well, it's funny you ask me. That's, thanks for asking. Um, so what I think, to my best understanding, is these are the events that you see described in the book of Revelation, specifically chapter 6 through 18 that have a past shadow prefigured fulfillment. There, there might have been, just, just like with that king of Syria there before Christ, there, there are things that indicate that stuff like this has happened. I believe that, that those were all partial fulfillments of an ultimate future fulfillment. You read in, in Revelation about a tribulation period that comes upon the earth, and it's specifically a time of God's wrath and judgment upon the earth. So I would come from a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial understanding of what things, or how things are going to play out. I, I would understand that, um, you know, the classic rapture of the church, I'm, I'm still riding the rapture train. Get off me, all right? Don't at me. Isn't that the thing? But the idea is that there's this hope that God is going to remove his church who are not appointed for wrath, and he's going to, in grace and holiness and perfection, shorten those days, but he's going to pour out his wrath it's actually called the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of Jesus in Revelation 6 on a Christ-rejecting world. Following that period, there's going to be the return of Christ. And I believe that abomination event is going to happen right there in the middle of tribulation, of that tribulation period. It's going to be led by the Antichrist. You see this like anti-trinity in the book of Revelation, a false prophet. You have the dragon, which is Satan, and you have the beast, which is the Antichrist. the end okay and then after all this 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 gets really happy he's going to send his angels gather his his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth after that tribulation period and here's where where we close i mean it we're going to close here ben deb why don't you come close us in a song 
Jesus says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. This is where this all comes to a head. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, it is near at the doors. If that doesn't make you sense like Jesus is, he has his hands on the doorknob of history. That's what Christ is saying here. When you, I talked about this last week, in the Northeast, when you see fall leaves, you're like, oh, fall's coming. In Florida, we just have dead leaves or living leaves, right? But the leaves, they indicate the season. And Jesus says, when you see this stuff happening, when you see the world conditions described the way Jesus does, when you see the gospel make its full circle around the globe to every corner of the earth, as Jesus promised, marked also by opposition and resistance. And when you see these events, I believe that the next event on the prophetic calendar, in my understanding, is the rapture of the church and then a seven-year tribulation period. But nonetheless, when you see these things happening, Jesus says, know that it's near. What's the extent of it? He's at the door. He's at the door. One, one author said it this way, that you can hear the Messiah's footsteps coming down the hall. Jesus is coming. I, I, would, I would gather from this an understanding of what's called the eminent return of Christ. I believe in the eminent return, meaning Jesus isn't up in heaven waiting for things to happen. He's not like bound by events that haven't happened yet before he can return. I believe that the day of the Lord also will come as a thief in the night upon us suddenly, I believe Christ may return today. I might not finish this 12-hour sermon. He might come back. You're like, yeah, it sounds like he's coming back soon with the way long you preaching. And when you recognize all that comes with him, you start to say like John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Would you come and make things right? We just invite you to come quickly, Lord, to return. We long for your return. We long for your presence. Jesus, forgive us for losing sight of your promises. Forgive us for building our lives even upon things that are going to fade away. You want us to build our whole lives on that which is going to last forever the eternal truths of your word. The last verse in this passage, Jesus, it says that heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. So we just put our lives upon you. We trust in your faithfulness. And we ask God that you would help us. That you would help us live with a sense of expectancy. Give us a sense of urgency. Help us recognize that you're at the door. May may that inspire our passion to proclaim you to our friends and neighbors and coworkers. And at the end of the day, God, thank you that this all hinges on your faithfulness. Not our faithfulness, but yours. Your word says that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. So we just together today, God, we say that you're faithful. Jesus, you're faithful to your word. We can trust in what you've said. You're faithful, God, even as a good father when we walk through really hard happenings here on earth. We love you. We trust in you. 
we honor you. Come quickly, Jesus, we pray. In your name. Amen.